Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to another episode of Living with the Shuruh. This is going to be episode 5 of our weekly discussion regarding the book titled Shuruh Commentaries and Explanations of Sayyid Qutb Milestones. My name is Khalid Mahmoud. I'm a proud member of the group, the Proclaimers of the Truth, whose leader, Sheikh Mustafa Kamal Muhammad, is the author of the book. Our intention is to discuss this book and break it down on a weekly basis with a weekly podcast episode with the intent hopefully of finishing in a year's time. As I said in previous chapter, previous recordings, this book is a book of study, of contemplation, and I think reading it in one go quickly over a few days will really prevent the reader from grasping the true intent of the book and the author. Now this is a book, as we've said in previous episodes, discussing Tizhotl's milestones. These milestones were written by Sayyid Qutb for the Islamic group that wants to re-establish Islam on earth once again with the understanding that Islam is no longer existent as an entity, as a construct in the world. Now, moving on to the subchapters that we will discuss in this episode. The first one will be a little bit about introducing the chapter titled The Unique Quranic Generation. The next will be a historical phenomenon. The third subchapter will be titled Even the Enemies of Islam admit to the uniqueness of that generation. The following subchapter is titled The Hope of Ascending the Peak. Next we will talk about the generation that was raised by the Quran. And then we'll move on to whether or not it matters how much we know of the Quran and the Sunnah. And then move on to examples of the uniqueness of the first Islamic generation and how admiring these examples of perfection is not enough that we need to strive to emulate them. And finally close with how the fresh revelations of the Qur'an deeply connected the companions with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright, so let's get to it. Alright, so let's start with the introduction. Now, as Sheikh Mustafa mentions in the book, you know, just looking at the entire timeline of Islamic history and comparing the generations of Muslims since the first generation of the Prophet ﷺ until today, there is no question that that first generation, the generation of the Sahaba, the companions of the Rasul ﷺ, were very unique. They were the most fortunate generation because they were able to directly experience the revelation of the Qur'an on a day-to-day basis. They were able to also as well directly experience the companionship of the Messenger of Allah These two factors were unique to that first generation alone. They were exclusive to them. But if you look at the title as well of this chapter, the unique Quranic generation, there's a reason that adjective, Quranic, was chosen by Sayyid Qutb. Because the main characteristic that differentiated that first generation from all other generations was that it was raised and nurtured by the Quran. So it became a Qur'anic generation. Not a generation based on any other principles or any other concepts. Not a generation united or categorized by any other concept except that they were raised and nurtured by the Qur'an. So that's one part. And we will discuss how that came by later on. The other part that was important in this introduction is the reason that this was chapter was chosen as the first chapter in the book. Because any generation that wants to revive Islam and wants to walk the path of the first companions of the Sahaba, must aim to become a Qur'anic generation. 
the rest of the book, all the other chapters and concepts later on that will be presented in the book are based on the premise that the reader wants to become a Quranic person. That the group that wants to bring back Islam wants to become a Quranic group, another Quranic generation. This is why this was the first chapter in the book. Because we have to establish the foundation, the baseline, which is you must become a Quranic individual, a Quranic society, and then we can talk about all the other attributes, all the other milestones along the path towards re-establishing Islam once again. Now moving on to the next subchapter titled A Historical Phenomenon. I think we need to recognize the inherent value in this generation and how important it is that we recognize this. This phenomenon, the phenomenon of this generation, was mentioned in the Quran and described by the Messenger وسلم, in one of his ahadith. In the Quran, you have this verse by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying, In English, it means you were the best nation produced for mankind. There's a value to this. There's a reason they were considered khayru ummah, the best nation. And then in the hadith, the Rasul who says, khayru ummati qarni, thumma alladhina yalunahum, thumma alladhina yalunahum. In English, this is, the best of my nation, my ummah, are my contemporaries. And then, those who follow next, and then, those who follow next. So that's, that's a phenomenon that cannot be denied. That's a phenomenon that is acknowledged in the Quran and in the Hadith. That that generation was the best generation. And all subsequent generations were lower in ranking. That's one part. That's from the Hadith. But also that generation and that nation was the best nation among all mankind. From the time of Adam until the end of time, all of mankind, this verse says, You were the best nation. So, we, as strangers in a strange time, trying to revive Islam once again, as people who try to walk in the footsteps of the Sahaba, this must pique our interest. This phenomenon must catch our eye. We must pay attention and look for what made this generation deserving of all this praise. First from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then from his messenger. Now the next subchapter talks about how even the enemies of Islam admit to the uniqueness of that generation. And you see this in all the Orientalist books, in all the books that try to from the West or the Far East, who try to explain away this generation as being a fluke in history. You see them talk about how the Messenger وسلم, was such a charismatic individual that that is why he was able to uplift an entire generation to the level of the Sahaba. You know, they have these listings of the hundred most influential people in the world, and always Prophet Muhammad is on the top of the list. And they say because he was able to found a religion, influence a whole generation that was able to then establish a civilization within 50 years. So it must have been his impact, 
that made that generation great. Again, hidden within that is the fact that that generation was phenomenal. So they try to explain it away by saying, no, it was a messenger who was so charismatic that he was able to uplift an entire generation. So even the enemies of Islam could not help but admit that the companions were a distinguished and unique generation. The next subchapter is titled The Hope of Ascending the Peak. Now it is a historical fact that no other generation since the companions achieved the greatness that they did. We just established that. That was a unique generation. That was the best generation as said by the Prophet in the hadith. And that all subsequent generations were lower in rank. But it is also a fact that there were individuals throughout the Islamic history that individually reached greatness. If you look at the Islamic history after the time of the Sahaba, of the companions of the Rasul you will see individuals, little shining dots of light throughout the entire expanse of Islamic history. You will see Hassan al-Basri, Sa'id ibn Musayyib, you will see Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, you will see Al-Bukhari and Muslim, Shafi'i, Ahmed al-Hanbal, and so on and so forth. People throughout the entire expanse of Islamic history who were little lighthouses in the vast expanse of history. So individually reaching greatness is possible. And this is hinted by the verse in the Quran. وَالسَّابِقُونَ الْأَوَّلُونَ مِنَ الْمُهَاجِرِينَ وَالْأَنصَارِ وَالَّذِينَ اتَّبِعُوهُمْ بِإِحْسَانِ Sadaqallah al-Azim This in English is And the first forerunners among the Muhajireen and the Ansar The Muhajireen were the people who fled from Mecca to Medina and the Ansar were the original dwellers of Medina who received the Muhajireen when they came over So, and the first forerunners among the Muhajireen and the Ansar and those who followed them with good conduct So that's one part and then the other proof of this concept that there will be individuals who reach greatness on their own is the hadith where the Rasul says Islam began as something strange and it will revert to being strange just as it began. So good tidings for the strangers. So there will be strangers. There will be people who individually reach greatness on their own whereas the rest of society, you know, is good but it's not, it's not striving toward that peak anymore. So there's proof there that there can be individuals throughout Islamic history that individually, on their own, reach greatness. In the book, Shaykh Mustafa says, quote, Thus, the door of hope, competition, and seeking that level is not yet closed. But only if we have high ambitions, a relentless will, and the desire to reach that high, marvelous horizon which the companions of the Messenger have reached. End quote. Now we move on to how this generation came to be called the unique Quranic generation. As we said earlier, this was a generation raised by the Quran. Sheikh Mustafa mentions time and time again in this subchapter how important it is that we become absolutely certain that it was the Quran and only the Quran that produced that generation. It was their sole source of development, of elevation, and of inspiration. There are many hadiths, there are many verses that explain how 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messenger وسلم, wanted the exclusive source of all knowledge, of all judgment for the Sahaba to be the Qur'an. There is a hadith by the Messenger وسلم, where Umar ibn Khattab came to him with some pages that he picked up from the Torah, the book of the Prophet Musa السلام, and then when the Messenger وسلم, saw him reading this, this page, he became very angry. And the Messenger وسلم, is usually a very reserved person. He doesn't express emotions on his face. But he was so angry that Umar عنه, saw the anger on his face. And asked him, Rasulullah what's going on? And the Prophet وسلم, said, and in English, this can be translated as Are you falling into this too, O son of Khattab? For he who has my soul in his hand, I've brought it to you pure and clean and white. You would not ask them i.e. the Jews and the Christians, about anything. But they would tell you something, either the truth, and then you'd end up disbelieving them, or falsehood, and then you'd end up believing their falsehood. For again, he who has my soul in his hand, if Moses was alive today, he would have no choice but to follow me. So in this hadith, we see how angry the Prophet ﷺ became when he saw his companions looking for other sources of wisdom, knowledge, development, and elevation. Because he wanted the Qur'an to be the sole source. In this subchapter, Sheikh Mustafa also touches on the other possible claim that the impact of the Messenger ﷺ and his charisma and everything, and his guidance, and his leadership was absolutely essential. And, with, and that's why this generation became the unique generation that it was. Now this impact cannot be denied, but it could not have been an essential and absolutely necessary a factor that without it nothing could have happened because otherwise Islam would not have been the universal and final message for all humanity until the end of time. Because a messenger was mortal. So if he's not there, and Islam is still required to become the final message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to all humanity, then clearly the presence of the Rasul sallallahu was useful, was impactful, but it wasn't essential and absolutely necessary. So then we move on to the next subchapter, which talks about whether or not the quantity in our repertoire of the Qur'an and the Sunnah is necessary. Whether how much of the Qur'an we know and how much of the hadith of the Rasulullah and his seerah and his conduct that we know is necessary to reach the levels that the Sahaba reached. And the truth is, the bottom line is no. But let's expand on it a little bit. Now if we look at the volume of knowledge that we have, the total quantity of verses and hadith that are available to each one of us 
This is significantly more than what the companions of the Rasul had individually or at any period of time. We have the entire Qur'an in our hands. The Sahaba did it. The Qur'an was being revealed verse by verse from day one until the death of the Prophet ﷺ, which was 23 years later. So the Qur'an was being revealed throughout the entire 23-year process. The Sahaba weren't just sitting around waiting for the entire Qur'an to be revealed before they could start doing anything. So clearly, the Sahaba were affected by the little bit of Qur'an they had. The other piece that's also important to know is that only very few of the Sahaba had memorized the entire Qur'an by the time of the passing of the Messenger Wasallam. So a very large majority, probably 80-90% of the Sahaba, had not memorized the entire Qur'an, but they were still the unique Qur'anic generation. So that's regarding the Qur'an. Now if you look at the Hadith, again, the Prophet was an individual who lived as a messenger for 23 years. The Sahaba were people. They weren't around the Messenger وسلم, 24 hours a day. There were many who joined the Messenger وسلم, later on. So they weren't there the entire 23 years either. So A, they weren't there the entire 23 years. And when they were there, they weren't there 24-7. And also, if you look at the history of Islam, the efforts to compile the hadith of Rasulullah into a body of work occurred much, much later. So that's why you have the most reputable works of compilation are done by Bukhari, by Muslim, Ibn Majah, Ahmed Hanbal, Al-Shafi'i, Malik. These were people who were writing this material decades, hundreds of years after the death of the Prophet And they did a solid effort and work into making sure it was pure and exact. But what I mean by this is that the Sahaba, when they were there, when they were becoming the unique Quranic generation, they didn't have the entire body of the hadith of the Rasul And then also, they didn't have the entire seerah of the Rasul to work with. Now we have the leisure of pulling up a book and reading the entire seerah of the Rasul from when he was born until he passed away. The entire 63 years. And especially the latter 23 years of his life when he was a messenger, almost a month-to-month, blow-by-blow recording of all his conduct. The Sahaba, when they were becoming the first and the unique Quranic generation, they didn't have all that at hand. So, to recap, the quantity, the volume of knowledge that we have in Quran and in Hadith and Sirah is incalculably more than what the Sahaba had. But we, as we all can see, are still incapable of reaching the levels of greatness the companions reached. So it is clearly not an issue of quantity, but an issue of quality and value. It is an issue of how did the Sahaba approach the little information they had? How did they treat it? What did they do with it? That's where the question is. So we must know the secret of the companion's approach to the Qur'an and the Sunnah if we want to be impacted the way they were. The next subchapter mentions a few examples of the uniqueness of the first Islamic generation. I would not mention it here because I assume that you've read it and you've seen what Abu Bakr and Umar and the rest of the Sahaba did. 
But what I wanted to talk about was how these were giants, but these giants were not made out of stone. These were not giants who were born poof and were already giants. People who were such pinnacles of greatness. No. These were people who were in their jahiliyyah, a pathetic group. They were hopeless. They were drunkards. They were killers. They were savages. But with Islam, they were be able to become elevated to pinnacles that would have been thought impossible if we did not have the proof of record. If their actions were not documented by multiple sources, you would have thought this is impossible. Nobody could have pulled this off. Nobody could have done what Abu Bakr, what Umar, what Khadija, what all the rest of the Sahaba did. These were giants. And in this subchapter, we only mentioned a few of them. Now imagine a whole generation of giants. This is what we mean when we say that the first generation was unique. But when we look at these examples, we must be careful not to get stuck in a loop of just admiring them and recording and looking and being amazed at their work. We need to strive to emulate them. Because the truth was that their goal, and as ours should be, is to be totally aligned with what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, His Messenger, وسلم, and Islam wanted from them. That was their goal, and it should be our goal too. They were an actively engaged group who wanted to conform to Allah's wishes immediately. They knew their responsibility. They knew that just admiring the truth is not enough, but that we must act upon the truth. We must apply it. And this is what the final subchapter in today's episode talks about. How the revelations of the Qur'an were successful in deeply connecting the companions with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To live like the companions, we must remember how they lived. We must try to put ourselves in their shoes and look at how they approached the Qur'an and the sunnah of the Prophet These were people who had a direct connection with the heavens. Every single minute of the day and night, for 23 years, they had an open connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There were verses that were being revealed in the evening that were judging and discussing the events of the day. And then people would wake up and say, I'm sure there was a verse that came out last night too, that might have either touched me and my conduct, or my fellow neighbor, or us as a community in what we've done through the night. And sure enough, they'd come to the Rasulullah and the Rasul would say, there was a verse that was revealed to me this morning. You that did this and this, so and so, and this is how we were going to take care of this issue. This is how they lived. They had immediate feedback from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for 23 years. So their approach to the verses of the Qur'an was very different from how we approach the Qur'an. When we read the Qur'an today, we look at it and we read it and... The verses are all in sequence from the beginning of the surah to the end of the surah. If we try to think about the circumstances around which these verses were revealed, we're still thinking about it in the third person, saying, oh yeah, this was because Sahabi so-and-so did this, and that's what the Qur'an wanted to address. Or Sahabi so-and-so had a question, and the Qur'an is answering his question or her question, and so on and so forth. We don't try to think about it as the Qur'an speaking to us, commenting on our behaviors, on our actions. And that's because the 
separation of time, separation of events. We're very separated from the events that happened 1400 years ago. But to be affected by the Quran, we must try to put ourselves in those shoes to say, this verse is talking to me. This verse is talking about my issues, my brother's issues, our community's issues. And then hopefully the Quran will impact us once we realize that it is speaking directly to us. So it is not a matter of how much we worship and how much we read the Quran, but it is a matter of how we worship Allah, how we read the Quran. This is what the Sahaba were successful in. I will end with two quotes from the book. Sheikh Mustafa says in the first one, quote, That is all good and necessary, but it is not the crucial factor. What is important is what resides in our hearts, the magnitude of our belief, how clear and pure and how deep it is. How do we live in connection with Allah? What are our feelings towards Allah? How do we sense the divinity of Allah? How do we sense that Allah is watching us in every moment? That is what we should search for. End quote. And the next quote is, They, i.e. the Sahaba, lived with the Qur'an moment by moment, breath by breath. Their hearts, their feelings, and their whole inner being was changed by the harmony and revelation of the Qur'an. This is how they totally transformed into an entirely new existence, having no relation whatsoever to their old selves before they had the Qur'an. End quote. So as we will see in the following episodes, as we dive deeper into how this generation became the unique Qur'anic generation that it was, and as we try to emulate and become Qur'anic like they were, let us try to remember and keep in the back of our minds the necessity of living with the Qur'an moment by moment, breath by breath. Let us try to live in connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Let us try to sense that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is watching us in every moment. Let's keep that in the back of our minds. Let's make sure that as we read the Qur'an going forward, as we look at the hadith of Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Let's be sure that we try to imagine a little bit of that direct connection with the heavens. That direct connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living with the Shuruh, where we discuss on a weekly basis the book titled Shuruh, Commentaries and Explanations of Sayyid Qutb's Milestones. All praise is to Allah, and any errors are mine and mine alone. My name is Khalid Mahmoud, spelled as K-H-A-L-I-D as in David, Mahmoud, M-O-H-A-M-O-O-D. You may reach me on Twitter or Facebook at that name, or email me at K-H-A-L-I-D dot M-O-H-A-M-O-O-D at gmail.com. Until next time, Jazakumullah khairan, wassalamu alaikum. ورحمة الله وبركاته